This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Today, actor Richard E. Grant. He's written a new memoir, a collection of diary entries during the last days with his wife of 35 years, Joan Washington, who died in 2021 of lung cancer. On her deathbed, Washington told Grant that after she passed, she wanted him to find a pocket full of happiness in every day, which is now the title of his memoir. Also, we'll hear from comedian Leanne Morgan. She discovered her passion for stand-up comedy later in life, doing weekend sets at comedy shows while raising three children in Tennessee. And back then I would think, oh, nobody's going to want me. I'm a mom. You know, I'd had on a, a kitten heel with a capri with birds on them. You know, I mean, I just always <laughs> felt kind of on the outside. Now in her 50s, Morgan has found success. And critic Nick Qua reviews the podcast Dreamtown about a small California desert city trying to revive itself through the legal sale of cannabis. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. For my guest, actor Richard E. Grant... The story that defines his adult life has not been his rise to fame or his prolific film and television career. It's not his writing, directing, or interviewing, or even his long list of famous friends. It's his 35-year marriage to Joan Washington, an acclaimed dialect coach whom he met during his early years as a struggling actor. Joan died in 2021 at the age of 74 from lung cancer. The last eight months of her life, Joan and Richard spent every minute of every day together— Richard documenting their time through journaling. He's written a book about their lives together called A Pocket Full of Happiness. Richard E. Grant rose to fame after starring in the 1987 cult classic With Nail and I. Since then, he's gone on to star in dozens of television shows and films, including The Iron Lady and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. In 2005, he wrote and directed a comedy drama film loosely based on his childhood growing up in what was then Swaziland in Southern Africa. In 2018, he was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in Can You Ever Forgive Me? A Pocket Full of Happiness is a collection of Grant's diaries during his last days with Joan, interwoven with stories about the life they built together. Richard E. Grant, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tonya. It's been two years since Joan passed away from lung cancer, and I'm just wondering, how do you measure the time since she's been gone? Uh, difficult to, to kind of quantify that because it feels like a navigation round uh, or through the abyss of grief that you don't you don't ever get over it. I don't think, but you you have to find a way around it. And she very generously said to my daughter and I four days before she died to try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day, acknowledging that yes, of course we would be sad that she was no longer around. Um, but she said, I charge you both to do that. And at the time, we were so overwhelmed by the tsunami of grief that hit us that it didn't really register. And then we realized that on a daily basis, to rather than thinking, oh, you've got to win the lottery or Nobel Prize or you know, do something extraordinary, to be more mindful of your everyday experience and focus on and celebrate something that is joyful or happy making. Um, and of course, built into this 
simple phrase is again licensed to feel joy or happiness rather than think, oh my goodness, I, you know, I should feel guilty because I'm, you know, I'm having a good day today. This book is your third memoir type book. It's so profoundly intimate because, as I mentioned, it's mostly a collection of your diary entries during Joan's illness, and it's interwoven with stories about your lives together. And there's also some exciting Hollywood stories, which we'll get to later. But, <laughs> but the book is basically a love letter to Joan, who was, as you write, a fiercely private person. Did that give you pause about how forthcoming you'd be in this book? Uh, that's a very valid and a great question because I had published film diaries called With Nails in 1997, uh, which chronicled you know the A to Z of never having been in a movie and then ending up working in Los Angeles with Coppola, Altman, Jane Campion, Scorsese, you know, the greats, um, people that I absolutely hero-worshipped. So that is a kind of rags-to-riches story, but it doesn't involve the level of personal detail that Mm -hmm. the pocket full of happiness does. And when I, because I've kept a diary ever since I was 10 years old, having inadvertently witnessed my mother uh, in flagrante with my father's best friend on the front seat of the car, you know, late at night that I wasn't supposed to witness. So not having anybody to tell, I instinctively started keeping a diary and have done ever since as a way of trying to understand the world and, you know, considering the people that I've met and where I've worked, it has been the one way of somehow making the the unreality of that feel real. So in terms of this this diary, I had absolutely no intention of publishing this whatsoever. And I was on a Caribbean beach on New Year's Day, the beginning of last year, and posted a thing, walking, uh, a video saying that, you know, I felt like a a turtle that had lost its shell and that, you know, the loss of my wife felt like my compass had been broken. And it had such an extraordinary social media response that it then elicited various publishers in London calling my literary agent and saying, would you publish a memoir? And I was very emphatic about that. I said, absolutely not, unequivocally not. And my daughter very smartly said to me, I think that it would help you process the grief that you're going through, which is so intense. And she said, why not interweave how you met each other and, you know, weaving through your Oscar stories and how you first met and your combined careers. Um, How about doing that? So I said, well, I will do that on the proviso because I didn't want to threaten my or jeopardize my relationship with my daughter whatsoever. She's the only child I have. We have. Um, I said, I will write the whole thing out. And once you have read it, you have the veto power to say one paragraph can be published, Mm. the entire lot or half or none of it. Mm -hmm. And she very generously read it and said, this is exactly how it is. And it it feels like a real record of your, as you said earlier, it's a love letter to her mother, my wife. You mentioned your mother. Um, She -hmm. passed away this month at the age of 96. Um, it's been a hard few years for you, Richard. My sincerest condolences um, on the Thank loss you. of your mother. As you also mentioned, um, you had this traumatic experience when you were 10 years old, um, seeing mm-hmm. witnessing your mother having an affair. You all had a complicated relationship. And I can't help but think about how in many ways the grounding for this book comes from you learning to do what you did all of your life as a kid to cope, and that's to write, to express your pain as a mechanism Mm -hmm. for healing. Um, A few weeks after Joan died, you actually went to stay with your mother for a few weeks, and and it kind of Mm -hmm. revealed something to you, important to you. It made you see the way you're choosing to live your life in love in contrast to the way that you were raised. You know, I think that it's probably generational as much as anything, but uh, my mother was very untactile and emotionally withheld, certainly towards me, and obviously complicated by the fact that she then found out that I had witnessed this, you know, her... She didn't know in the moment. Infidelity. She didn't, she didn't know at the time. She found out. Um, I told her 30 years later. But it had led to a sort of enormous amount of estrangement when I was growing up. Um, And 
I think that staying with her, you know, four weeks after Joan had died, having not seen her for four years because of COVID and everything else, um, it so underlined how important Joan and I placed fidelity and trust, complete trust, as the bedrock of our relationship, probably way more than anybody else getting married for the first time might have done. I think because her first husband was... um, an inveterate philanderer and was unfaithful throughout their marriage. Joan. And because I had witnessed, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And because I had witnessed this thing with my mother and then had to parent my father essentially through my teenage years because he descended into very violent alcoholism after my mother had left him, that I I felt the weight of that... um, what that infidelity had wrought upon his psyche, and therefore it it you know subsequently affected me, so I thought firstly that I would never get married, never have a child, but then of course, what i didn't uh, recognize what John Lennon quipped you know a few days before he was murdered that life is what ha- happens in between making your plans, and at the age of twenty six I met Joan Washington, fell in love. And then we had a child. So yes, every, all of that was turned on its head. But we, you know, we were so hell bent on being faithful to one another, um, lest we repeat what had happened in her first marriage or in my parents' marriage. Joan was a legend for helping actors um, not just perfect their national dialects, but also regional and local lilts. She helped Penelope Cruz mm-hmm. to sound Greek and lots of different people. Um, it's mm-hmm. so impressive what she did, and I'm always so fascinated, especially by British actors who can perfect regional accents from the United States. Um, did she ever help you at home with your scripts when you were going through after that first initial meeting where she, she worked with you? Oh, yeah. But uh, she was, as a res- I think the equivalent would be if you try and teach the person that you love most in the world or somebody in your family to give them driving lessons, uh, your patience with them is probably far less than That's if so it's true. somebody who you've never met before. <laughs> yes, yes. So my point being is that she she said, for goodness sake, stick to the work, stop flirting with me, stick to the point, don't mess around, you know, all that stuff. So the last thing that she coached me on was I had to play a working-class blue-collar aging drag queen in a movie version of a West End musical called Everybody's Talking About Jamie, in which I played a, um, a drag queen from Sheffield in the north of England with a northern accent, and she said, you have got to get this right, otherwise you're going to be in a professional embarrassment to me. It'll reflect very badly on me if you yes. haven't got this accent right. So I was pretty terrified doing that with her, but she was very, very strict indeed. But I suppose she had to be. Yes. Let's take a short break. My guest today is award-winning actor Richard E. Grant. He's written a book about his life and his wife of 35 years, Joan Washington, called A Pocket Full of Happiness. Washington was an acclaimed voice coach who helped actors perfect their dialect for films, television, and theater. She died in 2021 from lung cancer. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. What does it mean to be black in America? 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Let's get back to my interview with actor Richard E. Grant. He rose to fame after starring in the 1987 cult classic with Nail and I. Since then, he's gone on to star in dozens of television shows and films like The Iron Lady and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. In 2018, he was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in Can You Ever Forgive Me? He's written a new memoir called A Pocket Full of Happiness. It's a collection of diary entries during his last days with his wife of 35 years, Joan Washington, who died in 2021 of lung cancer. Your friend list reads like a call sheet for A-list actors and dignitaries. Sir Elton John, <laughs> King Charles, and Camilla Parker Bowles. You even recount an interview you did with our former president, Donald Trump, back in 2013 um, mm-hmm. for this series that you were doing. But the story of your friendship with Barbara Streisand is sweet and funny to me because it shows that even celebrities can be fanatics too. And you, you and Joan actually bonded over Barbara during those first few months of dating. Well, I think that if she, if she'd found out that I was so obsessed with Streisand at this point, she might've run for the hills because she'd been (laughs) the first movie that she'd coached on as a dialect coach was, um, Streisand's directorial debut, Yentl, Yentl. in 1981, before I'd come to England. So, But uh, I had written um, a fan letter to Barbara Streisand when I was 14 years old in 1971, 72, um, because I'd read that she had had um, um, romance problems with Ryan O'Neill and she was sick and tired of the press. And, of course, I was reading this in the press. So I wrote her this letter, you know, with great uh, <laughs> integrity and devotion, saying, you know, I've been a lifelong fan of yours at the age of, and uh, please come to Swaziland. We have a lovely house and a pool, and nobody will bother you here. <laughs> you, you know, we've got invited her to, like, horse town with, get over her heartbreak. Yeah, it's your place. <laughs> with one cinema, you can come and stay as long as you like. I'm, you know, hoping for uh, a hasty reply. Well, of course, that never happened. So during the... Um, Oscar, the run-up to the Oscars in 2019, early 2019, Joe and I had a day off from all my press duties and went up to Malibu for lunch. And I said, we're just going to drive a little bit a little bit beyond here. And she said, we don't know anybody here. And I said, yeah, yeah, just indulge me. Went down this cul-de-sac and turned around at the end and stopped the car, got out. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, you know, just give me five minutes. She said, is that Barbara Streisand's Gates? And I said, yes, it is. She said, Swaz, you're going to be arrested. The Oscars are in 10 days' time. Get a grip. You, know, you do not want me deported from America or arrested. Get back in the car. I said, give me two minutes. So I went, pressed the buzzer. What was I expecting, Johnny, that Barbara Streisand's going to come out and say, ah, you must come in. I got your fan letter. No, of course not. The security guy comes up and he says, what are you doing here? And what are you delivering? And I said, no, no. You know, I'm, I wrote Barbara Streisand a fan letter when I was you know, 14 years old. Old, 100 years ago, I've been nominated for an Oscar. And uh, I said, may I have permission to take a selfie outside her gates? And he said, yeah, sure. It's a public highway. You, you know, polite to ask. So I did. I then posted a picture of myself on Twitter and Instagram standing in front of her gates and a copy of the fan mail that I'd, uh, fan letter I'd written to her, you know, way back when. And the next day, Oily called me up from London. I could hear her friends laughing in the background. And she said, Dad, have you looked at your Twitter feed today? And I said, no, I haven't. I said, what's so funny? And she said, have a look. Barbara Streisand has replied to your tweet that you sent yesterday. And I said, don't mess with me. I am. This is too cruel. You can't mess with my psyche. This is, it means far too much. Do not do this. It's, 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 you know, it's too painful. And she said, Dad, get a grip. Have a look. She has replied. And indeed, she had. And, oh, my goodness, when I read that, the email that she had replied to me, I burst into tears. I could not believe that the person that I had, you know, heroin worshipped for decades had actually replied to me. So then I met her at the Oscars and then subsequently at Donna Karen's house um, uh, a year and a half later. And I had this you know, almost two hour one to one conversation with her, which was everything that I could possibly have imagined. And I did say to her at the end of it, I have a confession to make. She said, what's that? I said, 
I have commissioned a statue of your head for my yard, the garden in London. And she looked at me and she said, you are crazy. And I said, yes, I know that. And she said, no, you are crazy. And I said, I stand guilty as charged. Anyway, it's in my garden. It's the, the, I've the been trying to envision this statue. <laughs> this, it, is it, it's, yeah. it's like a, please describe it. It's two foot tall. It's two foot tall. It's of her. It's from her neck up to the top of her head. And it's angled so that you see it from favoring her left profile. What is it made out of? Which is how she likes to get shot. Um, It's made out of a dense silicon and uh, fiberglass that a sculptor um, I commissioned to make it. So that it would be weatherproof. Um, and, and, and did you say it's from her left side because that's her good side? She likes to take photos from. Yeah, that side. obviously, obviously, you can walk around it and you can see every side, but um, it's positioned so that um, there's a mirror behind it as well, so that you can <laughs> you can see both sides. But it favors her left profile. Oh my yeah. gosh! Sounds like you keep everything because you still had the letters. You still had copies of things that you wrote. Oh yeah, I'm a hoarder. Tanya, I'm a hoarder. My house is maximalist um, from floor to ceiling. And both Joan and I and our daughter as well have inherited this absolute obsession with collecting stuff. You were nominated for several awards, including an Oscar for your supporting role in the black comedy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And you write about the sweet moment when you got the call, the moment that you and Joan shared, which was, was utter disbelief, as you describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's the idea that growing up in the smallest country in southern in the southern hemisphere, which was then called Swaziland, now called Eswatini, that I did, um, literally had one movie house and didn't have television until after I'd left in 1980. So the idea that, A, you could possibly become, you know, you could make it as an actor, let alone uh, have a career in the movies, was so fantastical that I suppose, again, keeping a diary was a way of of trying to sort of bottle that, of making what is seems so unreal, real. Um, but, you know, Joan was incredibly supportive and thrilled for me that I got it, but she really floored me because on the the night before I was due to fly with her to go to the Oscar ceremony in February 2019, she said, Swaz, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what's that? And she said, I'm not coming to the Oscars. And I said, what do you mean you're not coming? She said, no. She said, I'm five foot three. I haven't had, you know, 15 years of plastic surgery. I am going to be dwarfed by the Amazon height of all the women in Jimmy Choo heels, all <laughs> trying to speak to you. And she said, it's just a nightmare for me. Um, because it's like being invisible. She said, take oily. She loves all that. She'll be six foot in her heels and she'll enjoy it. And she said, you'll see the wisdom of of my decision subsequently. And I was absolutely furious. And of course, when I got there, um, I realized that she was right because everything that she predicted would happen. And of course, she didn't see me literally prostrating myself in front of Barbara Streisand at the governor's <laughs> ball afterwards, which Oily then said, this is exactly why mum shouldn't have been here. And she was she was thrilled. Yes. Anyway, that's a very long no, reply I'd... to your short question. Oh, absolutely. No, it's not. I mean, it was it, it, it's what happened. And it is. I saw the beautiful pictures of you and your, your daughter on that night. You know, something I'm curious about is someone who writes a journal Every day. So, do you mm-hmm. carve out? Do you carve out time in your day every day? Is it at the in the morning? Is it at night? Do you skip? Days? I do it at the end of the day. When okay. do you do yours? It depends. Sometimes I do it in the morning, and sometimes I do it at night. But I've been keeping a journal since I was ten too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And are you are you published? No, no. They're just stacks and stacks of journals that I keep. Tanya, and Tanya, I think like Tanya, maybe come on, come maybe on. my kids will want them when they're, you know, old. I also have journals that I oh, write to bet them. They do. Yeah, that it like yeah. just letters oh, that's to them. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm fascinated to know was there ever a time maybe when you were young in Swaziland where you envisioned these yeah. journals being a record for your thoughts in books being published as you are now? Never. Never even not for a nanosecond did that cross my mind because I thought that, that, you know, that my chances of actually becoming a professional actor were so 
scoffed at and remote um, an impossibility that no it didn't it was I, it was like just fantasy it was like being every 12 year old in 1969 when i was growing up wanted to go to the moon because neil armstrong had set foot on it in you know july that year so but so armstrong right actor. who fulfilled that in your mind's imagination though for acting because there had to be some folks that you were looking up to to even see that as a possibility Oh, I fixated on Donald Sutherland because he grew up in a tiny town in Canada, was over six foot tall, had a very long face and didn't look like Robert Redford. And I thought, oh, well, if Donald Sutherland can make it as an actor, <laughs> maybe there's a chance that, that there's room for another long faced person. So, um, yeah, he kept me going. And then that kept me going for, you know, until I was 12 years old. And then I saw Funny Girl with... Another person that I'd never seen before who had a very long face and a long mm-hmm. nose. And I thought, oh, this is Barbara Streisand here. And when she was singing I'm the Greatest Star, I thought, oh, well, she's not singing this to anybody else but me. And so Donald was shifted out and Barbara then became the person that I thought, well, you know, talent and beauty and all those things and her extraordinary everything um, is, was something to you know, be galvanized by. Richard E. Grant, thank you for this conversation. And thank you for sharing Joan with us. Thank you so much for all your incredibly informed questions and enthusiasm for the book. I can't tell you how grateful I am to you, Tanya. Thank you. Richard E. Grant is an award-winning actor and author of A Pocket Full of Happiness. The new podcast, Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto, is about a small California desert town that turns to legal cannabis sales to try to revive its small economy. Critic Nick Qua sees it as a worthy addition to a handful of podcasts he calls Civic Noir, examining small city life corruption and renewal. It's an image straight out of an old Western, or the Bible. A small desert community finds itself on the brink of disaster, when a stranger appears with a bold vision for the future. The dream was realized, and for a while, things were good, until they weren't. In this case, the desert community is a tiny city called Adelanto, located just north of the greater Los Angeles area. Like so many other places in the United States, Adelanto was hard hit by the 2008 recession, and the city's finances were so dire it almost went bankrupt in 2014. That's when the stranger comes through. His name is John Woodard but he goes by Bug, and the vision he brings is the dream of a modern gold rush, a legal marijuana economy. Bug's plan was to make Adelanto the first city in California to legalize commercial cannabis cultivation, which, it turns out, is a very difficult and complicated thing to pull off. It's hard to overstate how much riskier and more dangerous the cannabis industry is because of the inconsistency between federal and state law. But still, Bug persisted, and his idea started to catch on with the rest of the city. The wheels are in motion. Ain't nobody getting in the way. I don't care if you're the sheriff. I don't care if you're the governor. I don't care who you are. Such is the setup for a limited audio documentary series called Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto, a fascinating tale of crisis and capital told through the lens of a city's local politics. And just to paint a picture of how local the story is, in his quest to turn Adelanto into a legal weed hub, Bug runs for a seat on the city council and wins, spending only $700 on the effort. Adelanto's bet on weed pays off, to some extent, and the city's finances begin to improve. But what starts out as a quirky tale of economic redevelopment quickly transforms into something else. A dance saga of shady real estate deals, zoning disputes, and political corruption. Within a few years, federal investigators become a common sight in the city. Dreamtown fits neatly into a growing podcast subgenre that digs into the drama and oddities of city lore. The vibe is a kind of civic noir, exemplified in recent years by podcasts like California City, which recounts the tale of another false fortune in a desert, Crooked City, which continues the documentarian Mark Smerling's interest in organized crime making the leap into local government, and Boomtown, about a small West Texas city's transformation by the oil industry. These shows collectively capture an anxious, melancholic feeling around the fragility of local democracies, constantly vulnerable to forces beyond their control. 
That melancholia pervades Dreamtown as well. The series is reported and hosted by David Weinberg, a veteran radio journalist. His best work, the nonfiction anthology series Welcome to LA, is filled with stories about odd characters building colorful lives in and around Southern California. In many ways, Dreamtown is a continuation of that project, with its keen interest in the people that make up Adelanto and the way their lives are transformed by the larger shifts around them. Weinberg has a distinct style, quiet, observant, wry. He has a wonderful eye for vivid imagery, which he translates into evocative scenes written for the ear. Tim is in his 60s, collared dress shirt and a vape pen in hand as he navigated the poorly paved streets of Adelanto. In the distance were the peaks of the Angeles National Forest. All around us, Joshua trees were sticking up out of the ground. And along the side of the road were bulldozers flattening the land for the foundations of the massive warehouses that would soon be filled with weed. That understated approach serves the material well, given how ornate and bizarre things can get in Dreamtown. One episode, for example, traces the story of another Adelanto City Council member, Jermaine Wright, whose time in government ended with a federal prison sentence for taking a bribe to help open a cannabis business, while also trying to commit insurance fraud by hiring someone to burn down his own restaurant. So Jermaine gave this fake electrician a tour of his restaurant. They set a date for the fire, and Jermaine paid him the money for the job. And it was actually kind of a steal. Apparently, it only cost 1500 bucks uh, to burn down in someone's restaurant. At least, you know, if you're paying an FBI agent to do it. But before the scheduled torching, the FBI showed up to the restaurant with a search warrant, and they interviewed Jermaine, and he confessed. There is often a fable-like quality to Dreamtown, which speaks to the somewhat archetypal nature of Adelanto's predicament. Across the United States, there are countless other rural cities grappling with some form of the same economic quandaries and ethical temptation. Dreamtown might seem like a Coen Brothers-esque caper, but it's fundamentally a story about what a city represents, the kinds of people who feel drawn to fight for its preservation, and what can happen when you make a deal with forces you're not quite prepared to grapple with. Whether a fable or cautionary tale, one thing's for sure. It's a deeply American story. Nick Kwa is podcast critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. He reviewed Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto from Cricket Media. Coming up, we'll hear from comedian Leanne Morgan. The Tennessee native has found success by making fun of everyday life, from motherhood and marriage to menopause, and her friends dating on the apps after 50. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven winners' color choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. There's no such thing as an overnight success, but comedian Leanne Morgan's path might come close. Morgan's career in comedy took off just a few years ago, in her 50s, after raising three children. She calls herself the Mrs. Maisel of Appalachia. My husband and I met, and I was so cute. And I was little, I had on little britches. And my thyroid was functioning. And I felt good. And he was so enthralled with me, and so in love with me, and pursued me, and bought me presents, and, and vacuumed out my car, and did all kinds of things for me. And we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary this year. Thank y'all. 
And now, I truly believe he would not pull me out of a burning vehicle. That's Leanne Morgan from her self-produced comedy special, I'm Every Woman, now streaming on Netflix. Morgan got her start in comedy by telling jokes while selling jewelry at home parties. And she makes fun of everyday life, and people thought she was hilarious. Since then, Morgan has performed at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal and in 100 theaters across America as part of her Big Panty Tour. It was announced earlier this year that Morgan is set to appear alongside Reese Witherspoon and Will Ferrell in the film You're Cordially Invited. And this summer, she heads out on tour again for her next tour title, Just Getting Started. Leanne Morgan, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Tanya. I'm tickled to be here. Thank you. Okay, I need to know this story. The spark that took this further came when you were selling jewelry at home parties. Was it basically like a door-to-door jewelry sales business? Yes, it was like, you know, Mary Kay and Tupperware. Yeah. You know, those kind of companies. I um, had graduated from the University of Tennessee and met my husband there, and he bought a used mobile home business in Bean Station, Tennessee, in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and moved me there. And I got pregnant with my first baby, and I wanted to stay at home with him and nurse, but I need, I'd like to make a little money and have a little side hustle, Tom. A little money in your own pocket that wasn't <laughs> yes. from your husband. Yeah. Yes, to get my hair highlighted. And, um, and I started selling jewelry. I can meet people and, you know, because I was isolated. I was, you know, a young mom by myself. In the, and I'm rural. I'm from the country, but I'd never been, been in the alone. foothills of the Appalachian. Yeah, and I just, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anybody. And so I start selling this jewelry in women's houses every, I mean, well, two or three nights a week. And, I'm, you know, somebody makes a dip or a pan of brownies. And then I would schlep that big case of jewelry and put all that jewelry out on a kitchen table, and I had a little shtick I did about the jewelry, and I was supposed to be talking about putting a, uh, like a clip earring on the on the top <laughs> yeah. of a pump and changing the look of your shoe, and instead I was talking about breastfeeding and hemorrhoids, and I would, you know, talk about that, and women thought I was funny. They started booking you. Um, were they booking you to do comedy sets in their living rooms? Yeah, I don't think we said that, but I look back on it, and I I think people thought I was funny, and they had a good time, and so they started booking me like a year in advance, and I and I just didn't push sales. I did sell. They did but, pay you, yeah. Yeah, I just think that they had a good time, and you know anybody you know can pick up a pair of nineteen ninety nine earrings and have some dip and have a good time, Tanya, <laughs> and that's what happened, and then. One night, a woman named Carmen, who I'm still very close to, pee-peed on the couch. From laughing? She was laughing. So, yeah. And in my mind, Tanya, that I knew, I thought, okay, I can make it and stand up. I'd always wanted to do it. And I thought, that was a God moment for me. I know that sounds crazy. No, well, I mean, your comedy is so relatable. You're joking about things that everyone deals with, hemorrhoids, motherhood, that kind of stuff, especially for women of a certain age. I I read one reviewer who said that you court audiences that other comics forget. Do you see it that way? Yes, Tanya. I do. I think, you know, I'm a 57-year-old woman, and I have got three children. I've got now two grandbabies, and um, I do. I think Hollywood forgets us, and I think people, you know, a lot of comedians that are cool and edgy and all of that just forget about my demographic, and I and I think we're the best. <laughs> I think we're the, you know, the people that make decisions that go buy tickets and want to get out and have a good time, and I do. I think we've been forgotten. You really and, buck this yeah common narrative about age. We think that if success doesn't happen in your 30s or your 40s tops, especially, I mean, especially in entertainment, it's not going to happen. You went on to start doing shows and then it picked up from there and then you started making your way to comedy clubs. But did it ever cross your mind that, wow, I'm of a certain age. Is this going to actually work for me? 
Yes, my darling. It worried me to death for years. I, okay, so I started doing really doing stand-up at 32 with three babies mm-hmm. in Austin, Texas. That was my considered my home club. And and back then I would think, oh, nobody's going to want me. I'm a mom. You know, I'd had on a, a kitten heel with a capri with birds on them. You know, I mean, I just <laughs> always felt kind of on the outside and then I, I, but Hollywood would call every once in a while and I get a television deal for a sitcom. And the first one was with ABC and Warner Brothers. And all that always encouraged me and kept me going. But I would, but then it wouldn't make it or whatever. And I'd be so devastated. And then another one would come along. But every stage, I would think, oh, I'm third, I'm in my thirties. Now I'm in my forties. Like I'm just getting, nobody's going to want me. Isn't that terrible? Well, is it true that you had like four television sitcom deals over the years that just fell through? Yes. And, but it always, even though they didn't make it, I look back on it now and I think, oh my gosh, that was, that was not the right timing. Like I would be devastated at the time, but. Those little nuggets would be would give me the encouragement to keep going, for one thing, because I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. I was not living in L.A. or New York. I was raising these children, and I got to raise them in Knoxville, Tennessee, and they became who they're supposed to be. If I'd have gone to L.A., you know, they probably wouldn't be who they are. And But it would I would be devastated, but then it always kept me encouraged, like, I've got something. So I, I know I'm not crazy. I can do this. I want to play a clip from your comedy special, Are We Gonna Eat Anything? I praise God. Weight Watchers doesn't have a limit on how many times you can join. <laughs> I've joined Weight Watchers nine times and lost seven pounds. <laughs> Turns out... You got to do it. And, and it, this is what's been so crazy, is that I try to beat the system. And I'm, I'm signing up, and I'm paying them. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to beat the man. I'm going to go in here, and they're not going to keep me in those points. I'm going to eat Sara Lee cakes, and I'm going to figure it out. And if I have to run 10 miles, I'm going to eat more cakes. Stupid. It's really stupid. And, but I saw the last time I joined, Oprah had bought it. And I saw her on a commercial, and she was twirling pasta and running through tall grass. And I thought, I think I can do it. I think I can do it this time. <laughs> That's Leanne Morgan from her comedy special, Are We Gonna Eat Anything? You know, Leanne, what is so funny is that, I mean, it's the stuff that we don't talk about, what we all do. Why do we think we can beat Weight Watchers? We're like, we're going to not be in those points and still lose weight somehow. And we do it over and over again. Oh, I know, my darling. You don't know how many times I've downloaded that app. <laughs> and, I, and, um, and thinking, oh, yeah, I don't have to do what they say. I've even flirted with a little elderly man that worked at Weight Watchers that took your money, your $11 every week, Ed. And I scared that little thing half to death. I remember saying, Ed, I've had a terrible week, and I've, I've eaten a lot of Dove chocolate. And he said, girl, don't worry about it. Don't weigh this week. And I thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> it's just a support group, I guess, at that point. <laughs> oh, it is a support group, and it's fun. It's funny. And if people listening need a good time, go to a Weight Watchers meeting. To me, I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever been to. <laughs> Leanne, you call yourself the Mrs. Maisel of Appalachia, which is a play on the Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, about a wife and mother from New York in the 50s and 60s who chases her dream to be a comic. You know, that is such a vivid description for me because Mrs. Maisel was so gutsy and also pretty fearless. I'm just curious, what part of that character do you most identify with? Well, I identify with that part because... Comedy is hard. It's a hard business. It's um, I I resonated with that character because I you're right. All of those things that she was fearless and she had those babies and her husband was a ding dong. My husband's not a ding dong, but she overcame so much and kept going and kept you know men would say oh women aren't funny and all that kind of stuff and try to sabotage her. I've been through all that, and I you know. 
comedy, when young people ask me, do you think I should do stand-up, I don't want to squash somebody's dreams, but it, it's hard for me as a mother not to say, listen, you're, you're going to be driving in a car for 300 miles to make $50 and you won't have a hotel room. I mean, it's a hard, hard business. But when I saw that series, I did. I thought, that's what I did. I mm-hmm. had three babies. I was in the Appalachian Mountains. I didn't have a comedy club near me. But And I just had to pave out a way, another way than the traditional way that people do stand up. And I did. I don't know how, but I did. Your family members, especially your husband, are often the butt of your jokes. I want to listen to this clip from your Netflix special, I'm Every Woman. He works for a large manufactured housing company, the largest in the United States. And he's worked for them for over 25 years. And he's traveled with them Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday. And that has worked for us. It really has. (laughs) Me and these kids had a ball without him. He'd come on the weekends, come home, and really put a kink in things. But <laughs> So during this old pandemic, he could not travel. I know. He had to make an office in our home. And he would come out every morning and give me this huge list of things that he thought I should be doing. <laughs> Hard things. Hard things. Things like paint the hallway or something like that. And I said, excuse me, but I stay in my gown until the third hour of the Today Show. I said, you don't know me, do you? (laughs) That was Leanne Morgan from her Netflix special, I'm Every Woman. Leanne, the the <laughs> pandemic really tested a lot of marriages and relationships, didn't it? It did, my darling. And let me say that Chuck Morgan, your that husband, we, yes. that my husband, we that we've been married over thirty years, and I, he, you know, was just so crazy about me. And when I was at the University of Tennessee, and would not leave me alone, and stalked me really, Tanya, and worked three jobs, and I and and stalked me at the same time. And then we married, and this has been the bottom line. We have had a wonderful life together, but I am very unorganized. I'm an artist, you know. I am an artist. (laughs) And he is a self-starter, successful um, man who has goals and reaches them. And that's been the conflict, is that he married a kook who, and he has always been supportive of me, but, but he has been... Just steady Eddie all of our lives and everything, you know, you put everything in its place. And, you know, we have health insurance because of him. I don't know, Tanya, <laughs> I would be living in a hole if it was if up it to you. for him. Yeah. Oh, honey, I've had a ball all of my life. And just when I had these kids, I'd be like, Let, every day is a good time. And thank the Lord for their daddy because <laughs> he has kept us all alive. I am a dreamer, Tanya. I'm a dreamer and I'm fun. Is there anything that's off limits to joke about, about him or with him and with the family? Yes. Okay. When, first of all, with my kids, when they were in middle school, they were like, do not speak my name. Yeah. And that was a very dry time for me because, and I did not want to ever make them embarrass them or make them feel bad in middle school. Wait, did they not want you to tell any jokes even about uh -uh. them, even if you didn't mention their names? No, my darling, because that, you know, middle school is a horrible time in everybody's life and everybody's self-conscious and going through puberty. And I happened to mention that my boy, my oldest, was going through puberty and had like one armpit under one arm, hair under one armpit and one he didn't. Yeah. And I was on the local radio in Knoxville, and his and it, he had already gotten to school. But I didn't think he was going to think anything about it. I just said it. And one of his friends was going to an orthodontist appointment and heard it in the car. And he came home and said, don't you ever talk about that again. And I felt so bad. And so I didn't talk about all that while they were in middle school. And then high school, they were like, we don't care what you do. 
because then they got tired of me and they didn't care. And then, but my husband, when I first got started, I said something about wanting something, but it costs too much money or something. And he said, don't ever say that again. I've always provided for you, mm. and you know that I can do that. And he, 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 that has been very important for him to provide for us. And I knew it hurt his feelings, and I never said another thing like that. Yeah. Because he is a good provider. And, and he, we can get our teeth cleaned and stuff because of him. Right. <laughs> if it were up to me, Tanya, Lord, I would have spent that at McDonald's having a good time, you know. Well, Leanne, Morgan, thank you so much for this conversation, and congratulations on all your success. Good luck on your upcoming tour. Tanya, you angel from heaven, thank you, my darling. Thank you. This is a thrill. Comedian Leanne Morgan, her self-produced comedy special, I'm Every Woman, is now on Netflix. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and directed by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematic investing. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.